Hi, I'm Brett Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Joining us today for a deep dive into the regulatory morass of vaping in the United States is Azeem Chowdhury from the firm Keller & Heckman. Azeem is a regulatory and public policy lawyer with a focus on food and drug law, and for over a decade, he's been one of the most prominent legal advocates for the U.S. vaping industry. Azeem, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Glad to be here again. It's been two years since we last had you on the show, and at the time, the so-called epidemic of teen vaping had yet to be declared, and the Valley Scare, which did so much damage to vaping, I mean, we couldn't even imagine that. And yet, back then already, the U.S. vaping industry was already under mortal threat from FDA's pre-market tobacco application process. Fill our viewers in about PMTA. Just what is it? It is the uh, primary pathway to bringing a new uh, e-cigarette or ENDS product to market. Um, as, you, as you know, uh, back in 2009, uh, Congress passed the Tobacco Control Act, which gave FDA the authority to regulate tobacco products, which uh, in this case are anything made or derived from tobacco, including components and parts. And so that definition uh, was broad enough to capture ENDS products or vaping products following the FDA's 2016 deeming rule. Um, but uh, under, the, under the statute, all new products require pre-market authorization. Uh, and a new product is anything introduced or modified after the statutory grandfather date, which is going way back to February 2007. So for the case of vaping or e-cigarettes, that's basically the, the entire industry. You know, there are, there are no confirmed you know, grandfathered e-cigarettes. Um, and so all products currently on the market do require going through this pre-market process, going through the PMTA. Now, this whole, what I find so interesting when you look back at the history of what's going on is that FDA had no authority over cigarettes. And so it was the Obama administration brought in their 2009 act which really, you know, brought tobacco products under the FDA, under the FDA's guideline. But yet this issue in terms of deeming uh, e-cigarettes to be a tobacco product, there was that original Enjoy lawsuit, which was filed that kind of did that for to the industry already. Right. So the Enjoy lawsuit, the uh, Cetera case, um, that was sort of at the same time as the Tobacco Control Act becoming law. Um, and this was, you know, what, what happened was the um, Enjoy and some other companies were the first to bring e-cigarettes to the U.S. market from China. These are the original cigarette-like products. Um, and what FDA, FDA's initial position on these products was that these must be drug delivery devices or drug products because they contain nicotine and they're being delivered into the body. Um, and even though these products weren't being marketed for uh, any therapeutic benefit or smoking cessation. Uh, and so uh, Cetera, and, um, uh, which was uh, Enjoy, um, they challenged FDA once they received a, a warning letter from FDA to come off the market um, and said, well, hold on, you know, we're not uh, a drug. We are a uh, tobacco product under this new law, which had just passed. And it was one of the first, if not the only decision at the time in, in 2010, um, the court, the district uh, court in D.C., the appellate court, ultimately agreed with Cetera that um, e-cigarettes that contain tobacco-derived nicotine 
that are not marketed for therapeutic purpose, that are recreational in nature, um, customarily marketed is the term, that those are in fact tobacco products and not drugs. Um, but because of the way that the Tobacco Control Act was structured, uh, it, it kind of created this, this, um, um, this gap because the, the statute, as I mentioned earlier, while it defined tobacco product very broadly to include anything derived from tobacco, it only gave the FDA back in 2009 um, the immediate authority to regulate certain categories of tobacco products, cigarettes, smokeless tobacco, and roll your own tobacco. Anything else, um, Congress left it up to FDA to deem them to be regulated tobacco products. And so at the time of the Cetera decision, uh, the court held that they are tobacco products, but they were not yet regulated until FDA promulgated its deeming rule, which didn't happen for a few years. Yeah, and that was 2016, wasn't it? Yep, the final rule was published in, on August 8th, 2016. It became effective that date. And from that point on, e-cigarettes or anything made it derived from tobacco um, were subject to the Tobacco Control Act requirements, including pre-market authorization, um, which, again, because of the uh, the way the law was structured, it still captured, it still required e-cigarettes to be subject to the same grandfather date of 2007, even though they had just been deemed to be regulated in 2016. Right. And but of course, cigarettes didn't have to go through any of this. That's right. Cigarettes and those traditional products, well, really any product that was on the market um, as of the grandfather date um, is still subject to the Tobacco Control Act. But in the case of pre-market authorization, uh, they are grandfathered. So they, they aren't subject to going through PMTAs um, um, or even, you know, substantial equivalence reports, which is the primary other pathway to make changes to those products. And now the 2007 date always seemed to feel like it was purposefully picked because it was the year essentially that uh, e-cigarettes really made it into the U.S. Well, I mean, I think it's a kind of a, a coincidence, really. Um, I, my understanding is that that date, um, February 15, 2007, um, was the one of the first was the date that the initial. Um, uh, legislation was introduced that ultimately became the Tobacco Control Act by Senator Kennedy uh, back in 2007, um, which was just before, I think, the first e-cigarettes, those, um, you know, Android products were starting to come to market. So let's jump forward a little bit because there were a lot of ups and downs. We had, you know, Commissioner Gottlieb for a time there, you know, extending uh, the extension to 2022, then it moved to 2021, and then we had uh, this very famous decision by Judge Grimm in a case regarding uh, some public health groups. Why don't you fill us in on that? Because that was the last thing we had you on the show for. Following the deeming rule, right? One of the things the deeming rule did is while it while it extended the pre-market authorization requirements to to e-cigarettes, um, and it did not change the the grandfather date. It did create a uh, what they call a compliance period or a compliance policy that allowed products that were already on the market as of August 8th, 2016, uh, to remain on the market without pre-market authorization until such time as the applications became due, as, in this case, the PMTA. Um, that deadline 
is what has been fluctuating over the years, right? And initially it was 2018 in the original deeming rule. Um, uh, as you mentioned, when, when Commissioner Gottlieb um, came into, into office, he, uh, via guidance, extended that deadline to 2022, uh, which really made sense for the industry because it takes years to develop the studies uh, and, and data to support a PMTA. Um, that deadline, that 2022 deadline, was challenged by the public health groups in 2019, who, who argued that um, FDA really couldn't change the date for the PMTA deadline uh, via guidance. It had to go through a notice and comment rulemaking process under the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and ultimately, um, the, they prevailed. The tobacco control groups uh, prevailed and the judge, the federal judge in Maryland, um, uh, even though he had uh, established that that the court that the, the FDA should have gone through rulemaking, um, created their own compliance deadline uh, initially of May 2020, which was a 10 month 10 months from that from that original decision, uh, and that was ultimately moved um, to September 9th, 2020, uh, because of COVID. So we hit September 9th, 2020. And so what we, FDA, as we know, was flooded with applications. Give our viewers an understanding of just how many applications hit FDA. Yeah, it, it's quite uh, amazing, actually. I don't think anyone could have predicted what would actually happen come September. Um, the agency, just by way of background, the agency had um, uh, they had estimated somewhere between, I think, five and 6,000 total pre-market applications would be submitted. That, in, that includes PMTAs as well as substantial equivalence reports. Um, and what ended up happening was applications covering over 6 million, I think 6.3 million products were submitted uh, by the deadline. And, and, and now here we are, um, the vast majority of those applications uh, have been accepted and and filed by FDA. So um, quite a tremendous feat, I think, by the industry. And that was mostly driven um, by the smaller businesses, the um, e-liquid industry, vape shops, that are the ones that have um, really thousands of products because of the different types of variations of, of their e-liquids. So these thousands of products, millions of applications. Now let's just uh, dig a little bit deeper into what is it is exactly the approval is that they're seeking. So is this is this essentially a marketing approval? That means that they'll if they get approved, they they will allow to sell their product. They'll be allowed to market their product. Is that is that right? Right. So the term is actually authorization. FDA. Um, is very clear that they, they never approve of any tobacco product. No tobacco product is safe, um, but they do permit marketing authorization to allow a product to remain on the market. Um, what does that mean? So to get a PMTA authorized or to get a product authorized through the PMTA process, uh, an applicant needs to demonstrate that the product is appropriate for the protection of the public health. Um, it's a very high standard. It's a, it's a new standard that FDA has never really had to deal with before, uh, established by Congress in the TCA, um, which is arguably a higher standard than uh, even for new drugs, which is safe and effectiveness. Um, and that's because the public health standard for tobacco products 
requires uh, assessing the impact on the overall population. How does it impact both users and non-users? How does it impact um, you know, people who, were, who are non-smokers as well as smokers? Obviously, great emphasis on underage or, or, youth, or youth use of these products, vulnerable populations. Um, so companies have to be able to demonstrate the overall uh, almost benefit of their, of their product to the population. Now that's interesting. And, and that was worrying at first. I know for a lot of people was that how could, you know, a small company who's creating, you know, an in-house e-juice, for instance, possibly be able to uh, do the science and, and all the research to prove that their e-juice is appropriate for the protection of public health. Yeah. And, and, and that is a concern that, that remains. Um, uh, first, you have to understand that the, the PMTAs that have been now accepted and that are on FDA's public PMTA list, uh, those are not products that have yet been authorized officially through the process. They haven't met, they haven't, FDA hasn't determined whether they have met the public health standard. Um, that list and those products have so far gotten through the first, maybe the second stage, which is acceptance and filing. And so, um, you know, the standards for getting a, an application accepted uh, is, is, is much lower. It, it, it requires some basic information on the company, the product. Uh, it requires um, providing an environmental assessment, which is probably the most kind of uh, tricky part of the application um, to get accepted. But uh, companies you know, have been able to so far get through those hurdles, uh, which is, again, huge success, especially for those small companies. Um, many of those applicants, uh, particularly on the smaller side, uh, likely did not have the time or the, the funding to complete scientifically rigorous PMTAs. Um, you know, they may not have had time or ability to submit uh, analytical data, toxicology data, behavioral studies, perception studies, abuse liability, the things that ultimately may need to be uh, you know, required to get uh, authorization. Um, so there is a big question mark about what happens next. Products, these small companies are still alive. They got through those first two stages, but now starts the scientific review. Do they have the opportunity to add additional stuff to fill out the application or is it only what was, you know, what was included in, in the first application? No, I, I think, you know, FDA has, has um, uh, indicated that companies are permitted to keep providing data. Uh, you, you can submit PMTA amendments um, as you are able to complete additional studies to support your product and, and uh, the marketing of your product, um, uh, particularly because of, of COVID. I think FDA, uh, when back in um, September of 2020, um, Many companies reached out to FDA, uh, citizen petitions were filed suggesting that or asking FDA to continue to extend the deadline because we were still in the middle of the pandemic and it was really making it difficult for companies to get the testing done, even shipping products to, to, the, to the labs who were all working, who were, who were shut down, um, was almost impossible. And so um, FDA indicated that companies um, you know, you know, as long as they got applications 
in on time by the deadline um, would be allowed to continue to provide information as, as it as it comes in, particularly for things like stability data, which are which are things that just take time um, and other longer term studies. Um, so FDA has provided companies that option. So with having six million products, you know, uh, applications being accepted, is there any advantage to the industry overall to have had, had so many applications submitted? Well, you know, um, is there an advantage to the industry? What, what it shows is that, you know, the reason, again, we have so many applications is because these small businesses have so many products, and that's what really um, allows them to, to survive, is by having many different flavors and different nicotine levels and, and to market a variety of products to their adult consumers. Um, you know, so companies, you know, the vape shop model doesn't survive with just a handful of products, right? I mean, it, it, it survives because of the um, variety of e-liquids that are available, right? And devices that are available. That's how the small part of it, the, the vape shop model survives. Um, certainly, I think it, it, you know, having submitted that many applications, it, it, it helps these companies continue to do business. And it has given FDA a lot to chew on in the meantime. It begs the question then, does FDA have the bandwidth and the capacity to process that many applications? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think FDA um, has, has done a great job so far. I mean, given what uh, they were handed, right? They were stuck with the deadline as well um, in, in, a, in a way. And um, they did create a system that allowed for the submission of these products, these applications through the CTP portal, um, allowing companies to have products delivered, or sorry, applications delivered to the agency before the deadline. Um, it was certainly a huge, huge task for them to be able to sort these applications, many of which are hundreds of thousands of pages long, right? So you're dealing with a ton of data in a very short period of time. And overall, I think FDA has done a, a really good job of, of processing those applications um, and giving companies uh, hopefully a fair chance to, um, to stay on the market and provide additional data through amendments. Um, and we hope to be able to respond to FDA's questions. Now, and keeping this question still to the small businesses that have applied, uh, <laughs> what kind of chance do they have of actually getting through? That's a great question. Um, you know, again, a lot of these small businesses, um, they simply were unable to submit scientifically rigorous applications, right? If you compare what they likely submitted compared to what larger companies, big tobacco companies submitted, um, you're, you're, you're comparing apples and oranges, right? Um, uh, but on the other hand, you have companies that have by and large similar products I and mean, the e-liquids are all virtually the same. You're talking about the same components, the same flavors, nicotine, et cetera. Um, and a lot of them uh, base their applications on the published literature, you know, trying to make an argument that based on what we know about these products, who's using them, particularly in the open system space, um, evidence that they are helping adult smokers transition away from much more harmful combustible cigarettes. Um, 
along with data to support that marketing data, you know, post-market surveillance strategies. I mean, our hope is that despite the fact that these companies may not have had the ability to submit long-term behavioral studies, for example, that FDA will look at who they're marketing their products to, uh, who's using their products, you know, adult smokers, and um, consider that when reviewing their applications. Um, and, and, and we'll have to see how it plays out. For these smaller companies, have we heard yet whether or not has there been a culling uh, from FDA? And let me partner that question with that there is another deadline coming up, which could impact this, correct? Correct, correct. Um, FDA has certainly continued to enforce. We've seen FDA send around warning letters to companies that fail to meet the PMTA deadline. I think there have been dozens of warning letters at this point um, that have collectively covered hundreds of thousands of products that did not were not were not subject to timely submitted PMTAs, right? And so, really, those products should should not be on the market. If you didn't submit a PMTA, you're not legally allowed to be on the market um, if you're a tobacco product. Um, and so, we have seen FDA certainly enforce on that end um, with published with the publication of the PMTA list. Right. I expect FDA will also continue to enforce against companies who didn't make that list, you know, who maybe had late PMTAs or it turns out their products weren't on the market back in August 2016. I do expect FDA to continue to enforce um, and bring those types of products off the market. Um, in terms of the deadline, so, so as you mentioned, September 9th, um, going back to that, that federal court decision, uh, when the judge established the September 2020 deadline, um, he also established a, what, what I call a sunset period. So FDA had until one year to review the applications submitted on time. And that year ends on September 9th, 2021. Um, what the judge also did though, was give FDA the authority to use its use its enforcement discretion to, on a case by case basis, continue to allow products on the to stay on the market that are subject to PMTAs after September 9th, twenty twenty one. And so again, um, FDA hasn't announced an official policy about what happens on that after that date. We're eagerly awaiting for FDA to do so. Um, our, our hope is that FDA will give the companies that, you know, have demonstrated in their PMTAs that they've made a good effort, good paid effort um, to, to go through this process, a chance to stay on the market uh, and ultimately respond to FDA's deficiency questions. Um, so that, that's our hope here. So what do we know about the larger companies and the multi-million dollar applications by Juul and Big Tobacco and Big Vape, you know, some big vaping companies out there too as well. How certain is it that they're going to get authorization from FDA? I don't think anything is certain when it comes to this. Um, you know, from what we know, what's been publicly available, companies like Juul have submitted very comprehensive PMTAs. They have done dozens of studies. They have been peer reviewed, they've been published. Um, they have um, 
provided FDA with a ton of scientific data and information uh, to demonstrate that their products meet the public health standard. Um, but Juul in particular, you know, as we, as we, as you may have seen from the recent congressional hearing is continuously attacked for its past behavior and its past marketing practices. And so um, there are many folks who are of the opinion um, that Juul, uh, you know, despite the data they've submitted to FDA, um, should never be granted a PMTA, right? Because of that history. Um, so nothing I think is certain, um, but our hope again is that FDA is an agency based on science. It does regulate based on science. They, they will review the data, not just from Juul, but everyone else and, and um, allow companies um, to prove that they are appropriate for the public health. We just had Alex Norsh, a journalist uh, from Filter, on the show, and I was actually kind of surprised about, you know, a glimmer of optimism that he had. Um, he had said in the show that, it, you know, it's pretty likely that at least a couple of companies are going to get uh, authorized by FDA. And then once that happens, there's the potential then that there'll be some good news stories, some positive messaging. If, you know, indeed, some of these larger companies do get authorization, could that lead to a change in public perception? Well, um, I think it's still, you know, I'm probably a little less optimistic than Alex. Um, uh, certainly, I think getting, if the FDA can review the science and, and, and authorize a product for marketing, it, which therefore means it is appropriate for the protection of public health, um, I think that would be huge, right? I think we've seen that. We've, the FDA has authorized other types of tobacco products smokeless tobacco, the ICOS heated tobacco product. Um, they have been authorized, but will it lead to a kind of shifting of the public perception? I don't know. Um, you have now, you know, public health groups um, that seem to be arguing that maybe FDA's scientific review uh, shouldn't be all that matters. That, that you know, at the state level at least, uh, um, states and local jurisdictions should continue to ban products and ban flavors. Um, whereas I believe that FDA is the entity that has access to all of the information and data and science and is in the best position to determine whether a product is appropriate for the public health. Well, if there's one thing that's clear, and we've seen that operating up in Canada here, is that these nonprofit, unelected public health groups have an inordinate amount of ability to pressure regulators uh, into doing something. I mean, Health Canada has been under a massive amount of pressure, otherwise they wouldn't have reversed the legalization of aping, essentially, that they did in 2018. That's the reality that we live in, right? And there are going to be um, certain entities that are never going to see the benefit, the potential benefit of these products for adults. And again, everyone can agree youth use of products of these products is, is we don't want. No one wants kids to use these products. But, you know, again, when it comes to Health Canada or FDA, I continue to, to, would, to hope that companies, that the legislators would allow those agencies, in the case of FDA, the agency that Congress gave the authority to determine whether something is appropriate for the protection of the public health. Uh, let them do their job, you know, um, 
let them do their job. And if a, if a product, even a flavored product can meet that standard, then um, we should trust the science. As in, we had a representative from Svada on earlier this year to talk about what happens after a product receives marketing authorization and a program they have called the Responsible Industry Network. Uh, do you know anything about RIN and does something like that have any legs? No, I think it's a, it's a great idea. I think um, it's something that the industry I wish had adopted years ago um, because it's, it's, a, it's a way for, um, of ensuring that products are distributed properly in compliance with all of the applicable laws that um, youth access is controlled and pre prevented, that um, the companies that are retailing these products and manufacturing them are all working together to ensure compliance. Um, a big part of the PMCA, I think, especially for the smaller companies, if they have any chance of getting through the PMCA process, it's going to be because of their rigid compliance to marketing and post-market surveillance. It's going to be because they can show that their products are truly being used by adult smokers, that they are in a controlled distribution network. It's not getting out, it's not getting, uh, you know, youth uh, are not getting access to those products. Um, everyone is age verified. That would be the only real way, I think, for FDA to have any confidence that products that may not be subject to all of the expensive long-term studies um, are still appropriate for the protection of the public health. So then, yeah, and it makes sense to me because post-market reporting, this isn't just an authorization issue and then it's done. It's it's really the monitoring after that that you're talking about and that's critical. Now, so what I what I was trying to get at with, with the folks from Svana during that episode on RIN was how much value actually could a program like that have in helping convince the FDA to approve some of the, uh, to authorize some of the PMTAs for some of the smaller companies? Did I hear that right from you, that it, it might actually play a role? I think so. I think, you know, if, if, you, if you're a small business and you submit a PMTA, um, and, uh, you know, you, if you don't have the, the, the type of scientific data that FDA is seeing from bigger players, right, um, your, your best shot is to show FDA that you are controlling who is buying your products, how it's being marketed, that it is not getting into the hands of youth. Um, that's what's going to differentiate these, this industry, the smaller industry, the RIN industry, from the larger players that are primarily sold in convenience stores and gas stations and grocery stores. Those nationwide type mass marketed products, um, you know, it, the, I guess there's an argument that those products, because of their, their larger impact on the overall population or potential impact, because they are sold in those types of um, uh, brick and mortar stores, um, that perhaps they should be subject to more scientifically rigorous um, demonstration to meet the, the public health standard. Whereas smaller companies, vape shop model, again, which is focused on adult sales, um, you know, they can still demonstrate that they meet the standard. I think by, by showing FDA that their products are being used by their target audience. A big part of the problem are politicians and anti-vaping advocacy groups pushing for flavor bans. 
They made huge headway in numerous states. Certain members of Congress have even attempted to get FDA commissioner to promise or guarantee that FDA would not authorize any flavored products through PMTA process. Azim, can the commissioner even do that? I think the commissioner made clear at, at the recent congressional hearing that uh, FDA has to go through its procedures. There's a very clear pathway to market established by Congress through the pre-market authorization pathway. And FDA is obligated to review all of the data that it is presented um, by the applicant um, and whatever it can find on its own, frankly. Um, so FDA, I don't think is, is and the commissioner certainly, is not going to be in a position to be able to just uh, say that, you know, all flavor products are not going to meet the standard. FDA has to go through that on a case-by-case, application-by-application basis. Um, in fact, you know, I get the question a lot about can FDA just ban flavors the way they did in, uh, in, in pod systems a couple of years ago. And really at this point, in a post-PMTA submission world, um, the only way FDA would be able to do any kind of uh, product standard to ban flavors would be through notice and comment rulemaking. And that's a process that takes years. You know, it's going to take years for FDA to complete the rulemaking process for menthol cigarettes, which they recently announced um, they would pursue, uh, as well as banning flavored cigars. It's going to be years before that actually happens because of, of just the nature of the rulemaking process. Now, could that actually lead to a flavor ban, I guess, is the question. Right, right. I, I, I don't, in, that, in the case of end products, I, I don't see FDA at this point attempting to um, extend the flavor ban, the menthol ban or cigar ban uh, to flavored ends through the proposed rulemaking process. I think that would just complicate things for them. It would lead to probably a few hundred thousand more comments they have to review and and, and respond to, um, and probably lead to more potential litigation down the road if that rule becomes final. What's much more likely to happen is that FDA is just going to continue through the PMTA process and decide on a case-by-case basis whether a flavored product meets the standard. And, um, you know, it may end up being that many flavored products don't meet the standard according to FDA and and ultimately get, you know, uh, taken off the market. But um, that's the way FDA is going to proceed uh, rather than rulemaking. Now, of course, there's also the possibility that Congress could pass legislation banning flavors, right? Um, but from a strictly FDA point of view, I think they're just going to, you know, keep moving ahead with the PMTA process. Azim, an interesting question I have for you is regarding synthetic nicotine, because if everything comes down to being deemed a tobacco product, you know, it's nicotine derived from tobacco, what happens if the nicotine is no longer derived from tobacco? We're seeing uh, that question come up a lot as companies look for ways to continue to to market products. Um, as you mentioned, um, the tobacco definition is is based on whether the product is made or derived from tobacco. And um, you know, arguably, if a if an e liquid or 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 an e cigarette device uh, does not contain any tobacco derived ingredients, if it is purely synthetic nicotine um, then and nothing else you know no tobacco extracts or anything like that then um, it, it wouldn't fall under the definition of a tobacco product 
right? I mean, I guess it depends on the type of device because there is this broader definition of components and parts. And um, if FDA can uh, determine that a even a synthetic product or a zero nicotine product is um, intended or reasonably expected to be used with a tobacco product, then it could fall under the components and parts definition and be and become a tobacco product. Um, but if you're dealing with a, a device, a, a disposable even, that is um, not being refilled or manipulated by the user, and it doesn't contain anything derived from tobacco, then it's really not a tobacco product and wouldn't be subject to the PMTA process or the deeming rule, for example. Um, it does beg the question, though, of does FDA have other authority that could capture those products? And um, that's kind of a gray area. I think uh, there's an argument that FDA does have authority to regulate those products as drugs or drug delivery devices. Um, going back to how FDA took the position um, with the original um, e-cigarettes in the Cetera case, right, that led to the Enjoy lawsuit back in 2008. Um, FDA's position back then was that the nicotine was uh, was a drug, was a drug delivery product, even though it didn't have any, any therapeutic claims associated with the product, with the e-cigarette. Um, and FDA lost that case because the court held it was tobacco-derived nicotine, right? And therefore it was tobacco product. Now, if you take away the fact that it's tobacco-derived, if you're going back to non-tobacco world, then do you go back to, does FDA go back to square one and say, okay, well now we're back to a drug, drug delivery device. Um, but again, you know, the absence of therapeutic claims, you know, is it intended to help people quit smoking or not? Uh, or they're making claims to that effect. I think it's going to be a big question as to how they're regulated. But um, that's sort of kind of the gray area we're in now. And I, and I expect FDA at some point will, will take a position. Now, Congress keeps chipping away at certain things, of course. They did uh, make the PACT Act happen. Uh, and, you know, that's the, what is it, vape mail ban. Why don't you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, no, that's also been a huge uh, deal for the industry recently. So um, the PACT Act is the Prevent All Cigarette Trafficking Act, and it's been around actually since 2010, right around the same time that the Tobacco Control Act became law. And um, back then, it, 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 its, its subject products were cigarettes and smokeless tobacco, uh, not, not vaping products. Um, and the purpose of the PACT Act was really to uh, ensure that the non-compliant products in terms of uh, registrations with the ATF, PACT licensing, and taxes uh, were, were all uh, in order. Um, and as you mentioned, the vape mail ban, um, in addition to compliance requirements for uh, shippers of those products, the, the PACT Act prohibited the the delivery using the postal service of products to consumers. Um, and that was something that initially, again, it, it applied to cigarettes. And at the end of 2020, with the, um, the Trump administration amended the law, they that PACT Act was um, uh, extended to include ENDS products. Um, and that definition of ENDS was actually very broad, and it includes things 
uh, not just nicotine products or nicotine delivery products, but really anything that's inhaled uh, or vaped. So any kind of vaping product, whether it's CBD or non-nicotine, uh, is now subject to that act. What exactly is going on down there? Like, I mean, if you're a regular consumer in the U.S., let's just say you're in Texas, are, are you able to order e-juice from Oregon? Yeah, it's it's the, the landscape has changed, I think, um, a lot in the last few months. And um, for the online retailers that were making it possible for, for that type of transaction to happen for a consumer, um, it's become much more difficult. So the, the PACT compliance requirements, um, state registrations, ATF registration, um, licensing, those all went into effect at the end of March, okay? Um, the, the mail ban, the, 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 the ban on the use of the Postal Service to deliver products to consumers, that was supposed to go into effect at the end of April. Um, the, the statute gave, it, uh, gave the Postal Service 120 days to uh, promulgate rulemaking. Um, however, they, the, the Postal Service has been delayed, and we haven't seen that final rule come out yet, although it could come out at any time now. Um, but so the mail has, is still kind of operational, so to speak. Um, but I think you're seeing a lot of, to go back to your question, I think you're seeing a lot of online retailers have gone out of business in the last few months because the burden of compliance with the PACT Act, all those registrations and um, licensing have been very difficult for small companies and um, uh, online retailers have, have taken the biggest hit. Uh, so on top of that, while the PACT Act is only um, able to ban the use of the, the mail. Uh, we've seen the common carriers like Federal Express, UPS, and others um, take the position that it, they weren't they were no longer going to deliver vape products, whether to consumers or to businesses, and that's had a huge impact as well. Yeah, that's difficult. Now, for you know distributors and stuff like that, they're still able to get product out uh, to retailers, are they not? If they're able to comply with the compliance requirements and, and find, uh, you know, shippers that are able to make those deliveries freights, for example, um, we're seeing, you know, that that part of the industry is, is doing is, is surviving. But, you know, the cost of compliance remains very high. Right. What about the threat of new taxes? That's always a threat, I think, um, at the state level. You know, we're I think we're at 28 or 29 states that have some form of a vape-related excise tax, um, and you know there are new new laws being passed all the time. Um, at the federal level, there was a, uh, a a bill proposed that would tax vaping products. It's I think it's still in the early stages, um, but that would um, tie the vape. Uh, it would create a vape tax or an e-cig tax, a federal e-cigarette tax, uh, online or on par with the cigarette tax. So um, again, that's not yet become law. Where we're, where we're headed is once there are products that make it through the PMTA process, and FDA has the ability to to um, uh, understand their true market size and volume of sales. Right now, it's very difficult, I think, to really know 
because there's just so many products, so many companies. I think you will see that those products that survive the PMTA will be subject to user fees. FDA will have to figure out how to calculate those fees based on their market share, and they will be subject to taxes at the state and federal level. Right. I mean, I think that's where it's headed, where there's a handful of companies with a handful of products that are authorized by FDA. They're subject to post-marketing restrictions and surveillance, um, and they're subject to taxes and user fees. So that's some good news would be that there would be at least some product out there available for consumers. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately we will see some products I mean, certainly you know, tobacco flavored products probably have a leg up in this environment um i think it's again hopefully the companies that are subject to this process can provide fda with enough support for their flavored products to also get through uh, I, I think that's really the biggest question you work with a lot of companies you know you have for a long time in this industry how do they feel about the future there's a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, um, these are businesses that, for the most part, are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to keep their employees employed. They're trying to put food on the table for their families. Um, and they're trying to help smokers, right? Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty. Really, we don't know what's going to happen in just a few months. You know, is FDA going to pull the rug out from under us? Uh, and say you can't market products until after the PMTs are processed or, or reviewed, which could take years. Um, are they going to have to shut down because of that? Are they going to end up not being able to afford to comply with all of the PACT requirements? Are they going to be slowly killed by all the uh, state flavor bans, right, or, or excise taxes? Um, and so I think there is a recognition you know, writing on the wall that companies are slowly coming to grips with that, you know, um, it's going to be difficult to to be in this forever. And they're, but they're, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, it had been two years, right, since our last interview. Um, if you told me two years ago, if you'd asked me two years ago, would you buy them to go back and look? But if you'd asked me if we would still be here two years from then, I would have said, hey, it's 50-50. Given the flavor situation, given the Valley Scare, the youth epidemic, the way things were looking for a while, it didn't look good, right? But, but here we are two years later. So I try to remind my clients of that, that things may look bleak now, but no one thought you could submit PMTAs. No one thought you'd get this far in the process. No one thought we'd figure out ways to comply with PACT Act or get products delivered, but uh, companies are still surviving. They're still fighting to the end to keep their products on the market for adults. And um, while it still looks bleak and I can't predict what happens in two more years, uh, you know, our, our hope is that, you know, things get better and that FDA that makes the right decisions and recognizes not just FDA, but legislators and public health recognize that there is huge potential benefit for these products for adults and, and not just tobacco flavors. So I try to keep my clients positive in that, in that sense. Fingers crossed. Indeed.